Welcome back to Fashion. We're finally getting back on track with episodes. I definitely underestimated how hard it would be to plan and record episodes while I was traveling, then moving back to the United States from Paris. Um, so that's why there haven't been new episodes the past two weeks. But now we're finally getting back to the very first discussion for the Fashion Book and Movie Club. Um, so just as a reminder, May's pick was the book, The Psychology of Fashion by Carolyn Mayer. The book's a pretty short one with just seven chapters and about, I don't know, maybe 120 pages or so. Um, so if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, definitely add it to your list. I'll have links in the show notes to like the physical book, e-reader, and audio books um, to make it easy for you for however you would like to read it. So for this episode, I'm just going to pick one topic from each chapter to discuss so you still have tons to learn from reading it. So getting right to it, chapter one is an introduction that goes over the basics of psychology and fashion to make this book super easy to understand, even if you aren't familiar with either one. And in this chapter, one point that really stood out to me was that we dress much more homogeneously around the world since fashion has become globalized which of course like there isn't any certain date for when this happened but there was a huge increase in globalization in fashion in the 90s and early 2000s just with the expansion of the internet and kind of you know ease of transporting and ordering different styles around the world so why this is such an important statement is because it shows just how recently we really started way overproducing fashion. Um, prior to this mass globalization, people really got a lot more of their clothing locally, which was, you know, not only better for sustainability in the local economies, but people had a lot more unique clothing based off of where they lived too. So chapter two then is devoted to well-being in the fashion industry and this is the chapter that I really used a lot for my thesis this year. One thing I want to talk about here is the connection that Mayer makes between fashion and positive psychology specifically. This is actually where I learned about Dr. Martin Seligman's branch of psychology which he coined as positive psychology and positive psychology aims to kind of like help people function at the best level they can. He um, he calls it flourishment. And rather than solely focusing on, you know, the pathology side of psychology and just kind of focusing on like mental illness. So if you want to know more about it, definitely read Dr. Seligman's book, Flourish. It has a ton of great information in it, and again, like it's written so that even if you aren't familiar with psychology, you can really get a ton out of it. They even have like some exercises and like links to websites, I think, at the end. So definitely check that out. But um, getting back to it, um, Mayor points out that well-being really hasn't been talked about like pretty much at all in connection with fashion, but we do know that the fashion industry is an industry that has really specific pressures that often exacerbate mental health issues or put people more at risk for developing mental illness. She talks about some specific people who have really been affected by these pressures and then like again just kind of emphasizes that we really need to learn more about what's needed to support mental health in the industry. 
So moving on to chapter three, this one is about body image and the beauty standard. Um, I did forget to mention this earlier. This book primarily focuses a lot on mental health and designers and models because they're high profile careers. A lot of other information that's out there on fashion and mental health focuses on these two professions as well. Um, and just one thing that I focused on in my thesis was that this does really need to be expanded in the industry, like well beyond designers and models, but it's a really good start in this book and it's a good way to start learning about the connections between psychology and fashion. Um, but yeah, just be aware that these kind of issues don't only occur in designers and models. Um, but anyways, this chapter has a ton of stats on body image, like percentages of teens, percentages of adults who experience body image issues in eating disorders. They're all really interesting. Um, definitely don't have the time to go through all of them here, but definitely check that out. Um, it's concerning how many people these issues affect. And I do believe this book was published around um, 2018, I think. So you can definitely Google some more like updated stats if you're interested in that too. Usually NAMI, um, which is the National Institute of Mental Health, has some really good reports available and you can just kind of like either go to their website or Google, you know, kind of eating disorder statistics, things like that. But the point I wanted to touch on from this chapter is the implicit bias that we associate with people that are viewed as kind of like possessing whatever the current like in quotations ideal of beauty is so if this is a little bit confusing just kind of think basically anything the media pushes as being like again quotes beautiful like appearing young maybe there's like a trend for long hair or you know the thin eyebrows that we're going back to <laughs> or like green eyes or whatever it is at the time but despite whatever, you know, differences there might be in ideals based on what culture you're in or time in history, most people tend to have these implicit biases, which are biases that we don't consciously think about. And you might not even realize it's something that is in your brain at all, but we can subconsciously associate these like, again, quote, beautiful people with a lot of other positive personality traits just due to the fact that they fit these beauty standards. So people often associate, you know, beautiful people with things like being warm, intelligent, social, strong, and, you know, it goes on and on. And we start associating these things way back in our childhood too. So you can obviously see how these standards that are so woven into our daily thoughts can be problematic for creating a fair society and even, you know, managing self-confidence too. All right, so moving on to chapter four, this point actually comes really early on in the chapter, but it's the idea that clothing is part of our identity. And this is a direct quote from the book right here, but we find it difficult to separate what we call quote, me from what we call, quote, mine, because they are a continuum. So Amara writes that in the book, and I think that this like really speaks loudly to one of the main causes of overconsumption of fashion, and this is just 
my own opinion here, but I think sometimes it's hard for people to continually, you know, reinvent yourself through your wardrobe because it is so much part of you and sometimes things about you change and then you want to change your wardrobe to reflect that. But then also on the flip side, if people are just kind of buying these trendy things that come up each season but don't connect to their themselves on a personal level, you might be quicker to kind of just discard them and not really view them as a part of yourselves. So I think this is kind of like a double-edged sword here where it's something really important to reflect on when we're looking at overconsumption. Um, I think that there's a lot of talk like about sustainability and the issue of overconsumption and it's definitely just not this simple solution of buying less. So um, well, leading then right to chapter five, this chapter is all about consumption. And a point that Mayor brings forth on the issue is that fashion is inherently a concept that is constantly being reinvented and consumers are attracted to it because our brains focus on new and exciting information over familiar things. So this, again, adds even more complexity to sustainability in fashion. Okay, so just moving on then to the last main chapter, which is on fashion and behavior. There's a lot of interesting information in this chapter, especially on colors and the role of clothing displaying different roles in our lives. There's a ton to learn in there, so I would definitely read this chapter. But I just want to draw attention to one like tiny line from this chapter, and this is a direct quote again, which says... The height of fashion is perceived as such only if those perceiving it are aware of fashion. So this is a line that really made me think because, of course, when you have labels and things like that from designer brands, certain people might be more aware of the status that these labels project. But it also makes me think back to these like implicit biases that were talked about in chapter three. And I would love to hear what you guys think about this too. Um, I think it's a really, like it's such a short little line, but it has a lot packed into it. And you know, you could think about it for a long time and constantly come up with different ideas about it. But for me, I think that there has to be this like sort of combo where people who are aware of fashion might perceive, you know, so-called fashionable things more, but... On the other hand, when you're, whether or not you're particularly paying attention to it, like fashion and trends and things like that, we're all exposed in some ways to either current trends or classic interpretations of style or just kind of expectations of what it is to dress well or to dress appropriately for social situations. So yeah, just let me know what you think about that. And then finally, we get to the conclusion of the book, which is, you know, pretty standard conclusion. It goes over a lot of the main points, but there is one super important thing here that Mayor states, and it's the fact that workers in the fashion industry must be treated ethically to support mental health rather than exacerbating illness. And she talks a lot about like garment workers because this is it's definitely still a really prevalent issue that garment workers are not treated ethically in a lot of factories. But um, 
it kind of goes back to what I was saying too, that it's really an issue throughout the industry where workers just have to be treated in ethical ways. And this isn't just for fashion either. I mean, it's any industry that if you want to support mental health, it kind of has to start there. Um, so yeah, that's all for this episode. And I think I mentioned this before, but there won't be a small business features on book and movie club days. And so our last thing for this episode is just this month's pick, which will be discussed the first Wednesday episode in July. Um, so you still have at least, well, almost a whole month, at least three weeks. Um, but so it's time to switch over to a movie anyways. So this will be much shorter and I've chosen Diana Vreeland The Eye Has to Travel as our movie for this month. It's available for free on Amazon Prime. Um if you really like it, I think you can buy it for like ten dollars or something. I actually haven't seen this one yet, so it will be new for me too. But if you don't know, Diana Vreeland is like a very well known fashion figure who was an editor at Harper's Bazaar starting in 1939 and she wrote there for 23 years and had this really famous column called why don't you if you have a chance look up some of those they're great (laughs) and she also became editor-in-chief of vogue in 1963 i'll get way more into her when we talk about the movie but i will put up like a short little biography that i found on britannica that gives like kind of a good overview of just who she is so that you can get an idea before you watch the movie. So that really is it now. I will talk to you Friday when we'll get fashioned again with another Fact Friday.